Welcome to the Doctor's Wig Show, where I show you how bad states of mind and difficult life issues aren't pathological, but rather signs of personal growth trying to happen. All right, let's get into it. Greetings, people. How are you today? I hope you're doing great and aren't unbelievably addicted to your phone and computer. (laughs) I mean, isn't everyone nowadays? That's why I often purposely do an entire weekend with zero tech. I don't want it to become one of my appendages so that I'm a cyborg. I was born a natural human and I'll die one. That's my ethos. But here I am broadcasting you my low-tech manifesto over the tech waves. What a hypocrite. (laughs) I mean, I'm sitting on my wooden bench I built. I'm drinking organic ginger tea made from my garden, so I'm a bit natural. But I'm also a modern man. I don't want to just play wooden music on my acoustic guitar. I want to plug in and rock. And I don't only want ancient wisdom because it gets static. I want modern wisdom too. I want to evolve. So let's go further down the digital pipeline to learn about using technology to increase consciousness, solve problems, and grow. In episode 56, How to Apply Your Inner Wisdom to a Problem, we used video to gain objectivity toward yourself. We amplified your capacity to see yourself clearly by accessing your inner wise observer. This enabled you to watch a video of yourself from an objective standpoint, rather than trying to understand yourself while entangled in an emotional mess. Video is a great technological tool you can use to see yourself in a new way, but you have to combine it with inner work that frees you from your habitual ways of perceiving and interpreting yourself and others. Otherwise, the part of you watching yourself isn't objective, and can actually make things worse. One of the most common ways this occurs is that your inner critic does the observing. Oh my God, I look so weird. I'm fat. I'm unattractive. My voice sounds awful. I look so dumb. (laughs) It's like throwing your critic a juicy steak, feeding it content it can have a heyday with. The exercise uses a method for accessing your inner wisdom to get you out of this critic and into a part of your perceptual awareness that has a degree of objectivity. Most of the time, we're just lost in the flow of our experiences and we can't see ourselves clearly at all. But everyone has a wise inner self, an enlightened observer that's outside of our psychological and emotional entanglements. This rather godlike part of ourselves is archetypal. It exists in all of us at all times, although it's not often made conscious. It's the seed for our enlightenment and the inspiration for the mythological hero figure, the wise man or woman who's free of everyday problems and can lead us to the promised land where objective truth lives. Our unrealized wise inner selves are also the prototype for our religious icons. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and enlightened figures throughout history 
represent our deepest yearnings for an innate capacity to transcend our problems and connect with the core of life. They were probably real people in the world, but they are also projections of our own inner enlightened parts. Accessing your inner wisdom is a step toward this higher self and enables you to observe and study your own behavior in a supportive and insightful way. The exercise hits the problem of non-objectivity toward yourself on two fronts. First, by holding up a mirror and having you stand back and observe. And second, by helping you to observe from a perspective that's outside your usual subjective complexes. Being objective about yourself isn't easy. You think you're being objective, but you're entangled in the whole system that's you, which includes you, the observer. It's tricky. To be objective, you need a method to both separate yourself from your inner processes and facilitate them in a neutral way. Easier said than done. And psychology doesn't help the problem. It pretends to be a science, but it's so not a science. (laughs) In my doctoral studies, I had to read hundreds of research papers, and I never found one where the researchers didn't inject their own philosophical prejudices and subjective viewpoints into the hypothesis, design, and conclusions. It felt like a million miles from the mathematical precision I was used to from studying biology, chemistry, and physics. My experience of this was confirmed recently when an international team of experts repeated a hundred experiments published in the top psychology journals and found that they could only reproduce 36% of the original findings. Psychologists in the U.S. wanted to respond to rising concerns over the reliability of psychology research, and they reached out to 270 scientists on five continents and asked them to redo the experiments. Fail! So much of psychology is junk science, but of course, the public doesn't really know the difference. Even the questions researchers seek to answer often come from totally subjective assumptions. The classic example is the fact that from the 1950s to the 1970s, the psych diagnostic manual had a gay disorder. And there was lots of research done, millions of dollars worth, to answer the question of how to cure gay people of their illness. So shameful. But it also shows the pseudoscientific basis of so much psychology and psychiatry. These kinds of false subjective assumptions driving research continue to this day. Everyone, including psychologists, is caught in their own inner systems of thought and perception. Psychology is unique among the sciences, not that it's science, (laughs) in that subject and object are one and the same thing. In biology, chemistry, physics, and every other science, the subject, You, or the scientist, studies the object, whatever you want to observe. But in psychology, the subject is your or the scientist's own mind, and so is the object. The mind is studying the mind. It's a closed system fraught with science-busting subjectivity. This happens in clinical work, too. You go to a therapist to get some kind of objective understanding of your life, and you may get this. 
But oftentimes, and sorry to be so blunt, some therapists just put their subjective stuff onto you. They sort of train you in their philosophy instead of helping you to discover your philosophy. They try to get you to be a certain way instead of showing you how to find your way. Objectivity is scarce. Everyone's got a horse in the race and wants to impart their way instead of being reverent toward your process. So how can we be objective about ourselves? First, I'll tell you what not to do, and that will lead us to the answer. You won't get true objective knowledge about yourself by starting with an end in mind. Starting with the end is a great tool for accomplishing something, but a lousy one for knowing yourself. If you've already decided that you should be calm and centered, or revved up and determined, or spiritual, or centered in the present moment, or locked into your visions of the future, or rational, or pragmatic, or any other predetermined image you strive toward, all your perceptions and interpretations of yourself will be colored by this idea. Deciding in advance which parts of you are good and acceptable and which are bad and should automatically be rejected will make you unconscious of your real process. It'll skew all your perceptions toward pure subjectivity. It'll make you automatically reject, repress, marginalize, and disavow important parts of yourself. You won't be able to tap into who you really are because you'll kill parts of yourself that haven't even been explored yet. You'll become who you think you should be, not who you actually are. Following this one predetermined path, unless it's some kind of process approach that embraces many different ways of being, many different paths, will result in you growing in one way and marginalizing every other way. You'll become one-sided in what you know about yourself and will try to force this one way of being on whatever's happening in your life. The question is, who says you should be this way? How do you know this is the correct way for you to be? Just because you think a specific path is the right way to be doesn't mean it's your true conscious path. To determine this, you have to go deeper than just your ideas about life. You have to work on your process. Your imagination of what could be in your life can enlighten you, but it can also sink you. It all depends on your level of self-awareness. And just because someone else says you should be a certain way doesn't mean anything about what's right for you. And while comparing yourself to others is natural, it can totally mess with your ability to be objective about who you are and who you're meant to become. Okay, so how can you be neutral and objective toward yourself? Simply observe yourself. Name what you observe using the simplest forms, amplify what you observe, and unfold the process. For example, say you're having a panic attack, which, by the way, is scary as shit. Takes the world out from under you, no joke. Whether you're a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or just someone at home having a bad night, you'll probably go through this whole self-defeating checklist. You'll decide right away that you need to feel calm and not anxious. 
You'll think of how other people are calm and not anxious. You'll assume your anxiety has no meaning or purpose other than to terrify you. If you already have a way of dealing with it, medication or breathing techniques or going for a run or whatever, you'll fall back on this as your go-to method and assume there's nothing else you can or should do. In short, you'll view your bad state of mind as inherently wrong. Now you've entangled yourself within yourself and have no objective relationship to your process. You'll eventually get out of the awful feeling and return to your normal self, but you won't have gotten the meaning or message from the experience. You just hope it doesn't happen again. So how does this method of objectively working on your process look in therapy? Here's an example of one of my clients, a 42-year-old investment banker who suffered from frequent panic attacks. He came into the session having a full-blown episode. He said it started on the freeway on the way to therapy. He was sitting in traffic and started to feel claustrophobic. A few minutes later, he got hit with a panic attack and felt like he wanted to climb out of his skin. He felt terrified but had no idea why. The first thing I did was have him do some slow, deep breathing to help him get centered and focused. This wasn't to get rid of his anxiety as if this would heal the problem. It was just to inject his awareness with focus. In some situations, like with mild anxiety, you can actually reduce it way down simply by doing breathing techniques. This can make you feel better in the moment, but it misses the whole point and just sets you up for the next episode. Feeling better right away isn't always good for you. It's more effective, objective, transformative, and satisfying to get to the meaning and message of how your anxiety wants you to change something in yourself. This is true self-awareness, healing, and growth. After a minute of breathing, I asked him to observe and describe his experience without judging, evaluating, or interpreting it. Forget all your preconceived ideas. It's your brain disorder, your childhood trauma, God punishing you. It's the boogeyman. Just give me your bare-bones observation, your neutral report, communicated in the simplest form. He said he feels scared. I asked him to describe it to me so I could feel it. And he said he felt like the cars and the world were closing in on him, and he still feels it. He said he feels abandoned, like a ghost with no ground in himself. Now, there's already a lot of information there directing me how to process his anxiety. When I work with people, I don't need to apply a method or tell them what their goal should be because I organically derive both of these things from their process. The methods are in your process, not in the practitioner's program for you. Next, I wanted to amplify his neutral observations. I asked him what he wanted to explore first, the cars and world closing in on him or the abandoned feeling and he said the abandoned feeling. I asked him what being abandoned felt like. He said it felt like being unseen, unloved, unwanted, and not allowed to play and have fun in life. He said the world felt like an 
overwhelming, serious monster suffocating him. I suggested he play act this world monster, and he got up and towered over me, sitting in my chair, glaring down at me. I told him to study his experience, and the first thing he noticed was that he not only felt like the abandoner, but also like the world closing in on him he had described. I play-acted him and said, Why are you doing this to me, world? You're scaring me. I feel abandoned. I want to be seen and loved. I want to be free and supported to play and have fun. As the abandoner, he said, No, no playing for you. You have to work, 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 24-7. Then he paused and started crying. I waited for him to compose himself, and he said, The abandoner the world closing in on him was actually his father, who he said was powerful and oppressive and wanted him to only work. He never recognized my client for anything but working hard, no acknowledgement of him as a human being with feelings and needs. I asked him how he dealt with this, and he said, by just working. Then he opened his eyes wide, having an aha moment. He realized that he is his father, abandoning himself, not supporting himself to have fun and enjoy life, not recognizing his own feelings and needs. By choosing to only work, he became the world, closing in and crushing the life out of his own humanity. I continued the dialogue, saying, No, I don't want to work. I want to play. Love me for just playing. As the father, he said, no, you're lazy. Work is the only valid thing in life. Then I suggested we switch roles. I'd play the father and he'd be himself. As the father, I said, get to work. Next thing I knew, he stood up and physically pushed me. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? You're not allowed to push your father. You're the son. You can't stand up to me. I'm in charge. He kept playfully pushing me and said, No, I'm in charge. I decide when to work and when to relax. As the father, I said, No way. I say work and that's what you have to do. Next thing, my client gently threw me onto the ground. He got on top of me and pretended he was punching me in the face. Then he started laughing. He stood up and jumped up and down yelling, Yes, yes. Fuck you. I can play when I want. I have the power. It was a life-changing revelation for him. The remainder of the session was spent on amplifying it and exploring how he could apply it. By this point in the session, his anxiety was completely gone. Over the next few months, it came and went. But when it happened, he knew what was going on that he was falling into his old pattern of becoming an oppressive father to himself. Then he'd do something to energetically pump himself up and claim the power for his own feelings and needs. He was slowly transforming his inner father by taking its power and using it to support himself in deciding when to work and when to play. It was a classic anxiety process in which one splits off their own power and it creates a spooky, fear-filled mood that scares the crap out of you. The solution is to take back your power.
This example shows an objective way to work on a problem. I didn't need to add anything to his process or direct him toward any kind of predetermined goal. I just had him report his observations, amplified them, and we followed where it went. By doing this, he arrived at a new inner wisdom, awareness, and objectivity toward himself. The exercise doesn't take you through this exact process, but it gives you a simple way to tap directly into the wisdom that already lives in your psyche so you can use it to objectively observe yourself on a video. Speaking of tapping into your wise self in order to see more clearly, playing music is a fast track into this experience for me. I remember the exact moment I woke up to music as a teenager. It happened in an instant. I heard a song on the radio one day, and it zapped me into an altered state of heightened clarity. I didn't know what was happening, but it was an incredible feeling. Suddenly, I felt like someone else. For a few minutes, I wasn't 13-year-old Adam Zwig in Canada with his family and school and friends and hockey team. I was someone else who had an outside awareness of all these things. It was like stepping out of a mist. For those two minutes, instead of being a normal teenager who's part and parcel of everything and everyone in his world, I stood separate and could see it all. It was a euphoric experience like I was floating above the earth. Also, I could hear every nuance in the music, and I decided right then and there that I was going to be a musician. I didn't yet know what a psychologist is, so that didn't enter into the equation for the time being. I had an after-school job and managed to save enough money to go to the pawn shop and buy a cheapo guitar. From that point on, I was a different person with a new identity. Music showed me another world I hadn't ever known. Each band, each artist, each song told me stories about life. I remember hiding under the covers at night with a tiny transistor radio listening to faraway stations. On one super clear starry winter night, I was with my family at a cabin in the Canadian woods. I turned on the radio, and through the static I heard sounds I'd never heard before. It was a live concert, and in between songs, there was a commentator. At one point, he said something like, coming to you from the great city of Nashville, and I was blown away. I didn't know exactly where Nashville is, but I knew it was in the U.S., far from where we were. It was the Grand Ole Opry, and my first exposure to what we would now call old-school country and bluegrass. I remember experiencing the words as being so plaintive and real, and how they felt similar to the blues music I'd been listening to. I started to feel that songs are more honest than the people in my environment. It was the beginning of my passion for learning what we as humans really feel and think, and what our true potential is. It wasn't until college that my mystical relationship with music found its counterpart in science and psychology. Over the years, music, science, psychology, and spirituality have become almost indistinguishable in my psyche. They're each just different modes of inquiry into the same thing, life. 
They all have the potential to uncover what's hidden from my view and connect me with a deeper awareness and understanding of my process. See you next time. Stay aware. You can follow me on social media at Dr. Zwig, and you can sign up on the mailing list at drzwig.com, where you'll receive discounts on private coaching, events, and merchandise, weekly personal growth tips, and lots more. Be well.